It is a pleasure and a privilege to be up here sharing with you guys tonight. So if everyone could please open their Bibles to the book of Matthew. Finished up chapter 3 last Wednesday, and now we will be reading the first part of chapter 4. So we backtrack just a little bit. In chapter 3, we saw that Jesus went to the, to the Jordan to be baptized, and then he, he identified there with, with mankind. He was baptized, the heavens opened up, the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove, uh, over at chapter 3, verses uh, 16 and 17, at the end there, it says, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus, on earth, about to start his, his, his public ministry, and he became like us in many aspects, a human body, a heart, a mind, uh, and a will, except for sin. Um, Hebrews tells us that he was without sin, uh, both in chapter 2 and chapter 4. Um, but John chapter 1 also tells us that he was the Word, and he became flesh. So from the beginning, and then coming to fulfill the plan of God, Jesus was fully man, fully God, um, and as we'll see in this chapter, he could identify with whatever man would go through. Um, and so a big, uh, a big part of what Jesus did, starting with his baptism, was identifying with man, with mankind. And, you know, make, this word identity is always floating around, but, uh, you know, his true identity was revealed at baptism, you know, with the, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Uh, and so because of this, we can identify also, we can identify who he is and also who we are in Christ. Um, you know, there's lots of talk these days about identity. Uh, when I was a teenager, it was all about finding yourself. You know, nowadays, it's a lot of the talk is, you know, who or what do I identify as? And it's fluid and ever-changing, but, you know, Ephesians 4 tells us, talks about putting on the new self, the, having our identity in Christ, that, that we are children of God and that we submit to the Father in all things as we're going to see Christ do here and that we have the mind of Christ. And so here's our ultimate example here, and we'll continue to see that as we get into chapter 4. Um, let's just start right into it with verse 1. It says, And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, one thing that's very important to remember is that Jesus was spirit-filled and spirit-led here. He, you know, he had just been baptized. He's starting his ministry on earth. Um, and as a man, he was going to need the power of the Holy Spirit to do everything that he was called to do, the miracles and obviously the sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection. So he shows us through his baptism, giving us that example of a, of a changed life of a transformation, of, of being submitted to the Father, and, and then also of living a, a righteous life in the Spirit. Um, and then once again, now here in this chapter, it uh, tells us that he's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he, here he will identify with sinners like us in his temptation, but demonstrating his holy 
uh, sinless character. Now, we think, if led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, lots of symbolism, the wilderness, the desert, the picture of, of, of desolation, of loneliness, of desperation, of hopelessness many times in the wilderness, a barren, dry place. And we think, well, isn't, why would the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? Why would God, a good God, lead us into a place of tribulation? Um, and in this case, to be tempted by the devil. And so it goes back to the old, age-old question, why would a good God let terrible things happen to us? And if you look, we know this. The Bible is full of, quote-unquote, bad things that happen to God's children. Look at what happened to Job's family, David's troubles with Saul, uh, Paul's imprisonment, Peter's imprisonment, all these things that you would look at on the outside and say, that was terrible. These were terrible things that happened to, to men of God. We need to understand always we live in a fallen world. We're not promised tomorrow. And, you know, yet the Bible still tells us that in everything we should give thanks. Why? Because we believe and we must believe that God is always at work. God is always doing something. And there's a purpose to what God permits. There's a purpose to what he allows. And it always gives us an opportunity to um, depend wholly on the Lord. And ultimately, it's going to bring him glory and demonstrate his power and his authority as we're going to see here. So back to verse 1. He was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That word temptation. Easton's Bible Dictionary defines it as a trial, to be tried, to be put to the test. Generally, it's a solicitation to that which is evil. That's why Satan is called the tempter. But temptation helps us to grow if we do not succumb to it. Is, it. is that why Jesus need to grow here? No, but he showed us through his experience how to overcome temptation. And that's something that we go through daily. Everyone is tempted. Everyone will be tempted. We all experience this. It's not a sin to be tempted, but a sin to give in to the temptation. And, and Jesus' temptation here was severe because he was being directly tempted by Satan. The devil is not like God. He's not omnipresent. So he cannot be at all these places at once. So he relies on his minions and his lesser demons to do his bidding. But here Jesus is directly tempted by the devil. And we will see that this temptation helps us uh, or strengthens us against temptations. When we see the example of Christ... Um, and a warning also that we're all going to be tempted, that regardless of how holy or, or safe we feel against temptation, if you notice here, uh, Jesus was uh, in a very good place spiritually, as we'll continue to read, yet here comes the temptation. Um, and to teach us how to battle against temptation, and then also to show us the confidence that we can have in the mercy of God to help us through any temptation. But over here... He's led to the, by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then in verse 2 it says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. 40 days and 40 nights. Is it possible for a human to fast? I mean, he's God, but is it possible for, for a human to, pass, to fast 40 days and 40 nights? I mean, Moses did it. Elijah did it. Um, people do go on very long fast and, and really have to rely on the Lord for strength. My uh, 
oldest sister, who's lovingly referred to as the black sheep of the family when we were young. Uh, she's, a, she's a Christian now. She's been a Christian for years, but we always kind of make fun of how she used to be in some ways um, because she was bad. And, um, and when she got saved, it was very miraculous. Um, and shortly after she got saved, she started going on these very long fasts. And I mean, like, I'm not exaggerating, 40-day fasts. And, um, you know, on, on a couple occasions. And there was, I think with her, there was so much she knew that God had to, wanted to change in her and do in her. And he, he just uses her mightily where she's at even today, that um, she submitted to these really long fasts and just spent that time getting closer to the Lord and really getting to know him and being transformed by him. Um, now, the Bible never commands us to fast. You must fast. But it mentions fasting often, and it's, many times it's linked with prayer. Uh, you know, and it's denying physical needs, like food or drink, um, for a time to focus on God uh, rather than, you know, these worldly habits or simple pleasures in life. Just focus on the Lord, take something out, fast. And uh, in uh, Acts 13, yeah, when the church in Antioch, they were praying and fasting, they're often linked, before they sent out Paul and Barnabas to be used by God. So fasting is often associated with prayer. It's a way to get, um, it's a spiritual discipline. You know, not a genie type thing, like, oh, I'm gonna fast, so this is gonna happen because I fasted. Um, but a way to gain God's perspective and remove distractions deny ourselves certain physical things like food or something else that um, can help us just to focus on the Lord. And so remember the, like I said, this is the beginning of his public ministry and he's in the wilderness after being baptized and now he's fasting for 40 days here, alone with God, denying himself physical comforts and needs to have a period of intense spiritual sustenance. This was a preparation for him. This was a preparation for what he was going to endure. And it says here that after 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. I read several things on this. Most um, people agree that when you have an extended fast, the first few days are the worst as far as the hunger pains. And then they tend to subside. But here it says now after 40 days, he was hungry. Most agree that his body was started, literally starting to go into starvation mode. So he would be physically weak for a time. Um, and, you know, it would be a battle for him, right, physically, denying himself food for this long. Um, and he'd be pretty exhausted, but spiritually strong, spiritually strong. He was fasting for 40 days. He was alone with the Lord. He had just before that been baptized and, began, and begun his public ministry. There's this time of preparation. Physically, he might have been at this point 40 days. Well, wow, that's tough for a man. But he's spiritually, he's really right there, one with the Lord, one with God, one with his Father. And, uh, you know, we know that, you know, the body, the first Corinthians talks about how our body is a temple 
and that we should take care of it. We should honor God with our bodies. So exercise is important. Being fit is important, you know, taking care of yourself um, and whatnot. Um, but not at the expense of being of, of, of the spiritual. You know, I, looking around, this is a, this is a very health-minded church. I've seen that. A lot of people do CrossFit or, or run or do other forms of working out. And it's good. Uh, all good things. Um, in all that, we can't forget that the provision we need for the spiritual battle. That has to take precedence over provision for, for the physical. Um, I know that I have, in, I've shared this before, but in, in my school, I'm a middle school teacher, we, uh, I am sometimes involved with a, a group that runs, trains the kids to run marathons. And so they train from August to March. Uh, I don't do it every year because it's, A, it's taxing, uh, and it's a, a huge commitment. Um, B, it, all the races, because we, we do many races leading up to the marathon in March, and all those races take place on Sundays. So I'm probably missing, if I am committed to the program one year, all the way to the marathon, set one Sunday a month at a race. And so it gets, it gets a little difficult. And so I've, you know, I've told them, I, you know, I, I cannot commit to every year doing this. It, it's, it's just, it's a lot, you know, and it's, it's hard being away, you know, from, from church, you know, for that many Sundays. Um, but, you know, we, back to this, we want to have the attitude of being spiritually fit, just like physically fit. Um, and Jesus was spiritually being prepared, like we should, for what lies ahead. We don't know what lies ahead. We don't know what is going to come tomorrow. We don't know what trial is, is lurking uh, around the corner. And so we need to be spiritually prepared, you know, and uh, here Jesus was spending time alone with the Lord and fasting. Um, but it made me think about spiritual disciplines. And I know when you read about the life and the ministry of Jesus, uh, you know, as a man, his spiritual disciplines, it can make you sometimes feel spiritually like frail. Wow, look, 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 at, look at Jesus. Oh, but he was God incarnate, uh, you know, but he was living as a man, wholly depending on his father for strength, which is how he identified with us. But as I was studying this week uh, for this chapter, um, you know, I was thanking God for his conviction because I was sitting there and I have a little uh, room I use as an office in our house and, and God convicts, he doesn't condemn. Uh, his conviction propels us forward. Condemnation keeps us back, paralyzes us, keeps us stuck. But I, I was convicted because sometimes as someone who, you know, I teach on Sundays in the Spanish ministry and an occasional Wednesday up here, uh, sometimes as a, as a teacher of God's word, you, you can fall into a habit of reading and, and, and reading the word, studying the word with a, with a focus on how you're going to teach this, preparing yourself for how you're going to teach something, not on simply reading God's word to gain what God wants you to gain personally from his word. So I started thinking more about that. I, I looked up I'm in my little office and on a shelf is a, uh, I bought several years ago a chronological Bible. So, you know, a regular new Bible like the one I have here, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, it goes in, in, in order. And as a kid, as a youngster, as a teenager, even beyond, I thought that the order, especially of the Old Testament, 
I thought that that was how the Bible was ordered as far as a historical timeline when I was, when I was younger. And then realizing, oh, you know, certain books were written at different time periods and they're not in the, the order they are in, in, in the Bible is not the order. So I bought a chronological Bible that had the actual order and I told myself, I, I, wanna, read, I wanna read the Bible chronologically in one year. I told myself this a few years ago. I, I read the one year before but I, I said, I wanted to read, I want to read the chronological in the exact order. Just, I just wanted to. I haven't. Um, and, but I was sitting there looking at it going, wow, you know, I, that was my intention. I really wanted to do that. And so, and then I thought, well, but it's already the middle of the year. Maybe I'll start next year. It's got a little voice going, why don't you just start at the day you're at now? And so I looked up, what day are we in the year? It was day, it was day 170, this was Monday. Um, and I looked up, oh, it's Ecclesiastes 1 to 6, chapter 1 through chapter 6. I usually do my Devo in the morning. And I thought, six chapters in the morning? I don't know if, when I'm getting ready for work, and I don't know if, I'll, if I would do that in the morning. But So I, I was already walking it back, right? And then, and then God kind of impressed on me, why don't you just start reading it right now? Oh, no, but I'm studying. Maybe I'll start Thursday after I teach tonight. No, just start today. Just start right now. So I took the chronological Bible, opened up to Ecclesiastes 1, and I, I started, uh, I went outside. I started to go for a little walk, and I generally, several times a week, I walk around my neighborhood. Either to just think, sometimes pray, or sometimes I just look around at other people's houses and, uh, and just take a walk. I like being outside. So I took the chronological Bible, just started reading out loud Ecclesiastes 1, and I walked all around my block, now, I kind of hurt my foot last week, so maybe I was walking a little bit slower. But once I got to back around, completely around the block and to my house, I had finished chapter 6. And since God kind of told me, you walk all the time. So you, you're actually giving me excuses for this reading the chronological Bible when you take walks almost every day, and you could do this every day when you walk. And so I thought about that. I'm like, wow. But the, the awesome thing is it didn't, it didn't make me go, oh, I'm such a miserable person, Lord. Um, no, it, it, it actually propelled me forward. Like, wow, that's, that's exciting. I thank you, Lord, for showing me this. Thank you. These simple truths, right? You do have time. You have plenty of it. It's just you have to prioritize spiritual things, right? So getting back over here, um, Jesus was hungry. In verse 3, now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now it says, now when the tempter came. Notice it says when. We should expect the tempter to come. We should expect temptation. We should expect spiritual attacks. Even when you're at, you feel like you're, I'm, I'm doing great spiritually right now. I'm reading every day. I'm really diving into the word, going to church. I love worshiping. I'm having conversations about the Lord with, a lot, with lots of friends. And I'm just, I feel like I'm just at a real strong point right now. So was Jesus. He'd separated himself from everybody. He was in the desert with the Lord, fasting and just having alone time with God. He, I would say he was spiritually very strong here, in tune with the Father, Recently baptized, and then, bam, here comes the devil. We shouldn't get overconfident. 
Temptation can come in many different ways and when we least expect it. And, and Satan here uses a familiar tactic. If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. If you could recall the, the, the Garden of Eden, he kind of did the same thing. He doesn't outright just say, he didn't outright tell Eve, don't listen to anything God said, he's talking nonsense. No. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He just twists things just a little bit and throws a question out there just to make you start to doubt just a little bit. He's, he's crafty. He's subtle. He's astute. He just questions God enough to create that doubt in your heart. He doesn't come over and say to Jesus, you're not the son of God. He said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. In other words, you say you're the son of God, prove it. Prove you're the son of God by doing what you have the power to do. He used some, some logic here. I mean, it's just, it's just bread, right? You're hungry. You've been fasting. You need food. You're not trying to seek glory for yourself by doing these amazing miracles in front of everybody. You're just hungry. Turn these stones into bread or you'll starve. We can do the same thing with trying to use logic in, in, in our daily life to justify things. Oh, say a young person, oh, they're, oh I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this person. Let's say someone older, more mature says, oh, so are they, are they a believer? Well, they say they believe in God, so, well, yeah, so do demons. But, you know, in finances, like, you know what, I've, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I really, do I need, do I really need to tithe? Do I, should I really, you know, can I hold on to a little more? It's, I mean, it's, it's a couple months, you know, I, I, I'll get back to it. You know, things like that where, you know, the type of friends, the, the media you consume, that we consume, um, we're always going to be tempted to make decisions that are maybe not in our best interest spiritually. So over here, Satan tells him, hey, make, command these stones to, to become bread. And Jesus answered, instead of entertaining Satan's reasoning here in any way, he simply answers him. And he answers from Scripture. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's just run, run, really, run really quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 8. First couple of verses. Deuteronomy 8.1 says, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers, talking to the Israelites. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now, 
when it says God tested them, it says in the wilderness in verse 2, to humble you and test you. That doesn't mean God was tempting them, because the other scriptures tell us that God does not tempt us. But he does test us. In other words, he allows us to get into situations where we have to make a choice between right and wrong. That's free will. Uh, or there would be no choice in obeying God. We have the free will to accept Jesus, to obey God, or to reject. That is our free will, and so we must have a choice. And so there is always a test. What will we choose? Okay, as parents, we have our kids. Uh, you know, as, as, as Levi was being prayed for, I'm sure his parents prayed for him all the time. And there comes a point where your child needs to decide for him or herself who they will serve. We, we, we provide the foundation. That's our responsibility. We give that foundation in the Lord, um, do our best there. But ultimately, everyone has to make that choice themselves. Everyone will be put to the test. Of do they, will they choose to follow the Lord or not? But we were given the opportunity to make a wrong choice. That's the tough part, even as parents. Giving your child an opportunity to mess up, to make a wrong choice, so they, they learn from that choice and really figure out what's in their heart and what they're going to believe. So you might think, well, God knows my heart, doesn't he? Doesn't God know what's in my heart? But when he allows me to be tested, I find out what's in my heart. I find out what's in there. Interesting that as we go back to Matthew 4, he's going to quote Deuteronomy a couple of times. So it's quite possible that Jesus was actually meditating on these very things while in the wilderness. Because he, he quotes, you know, like I said, Deuteronomy a couple of times. And so it's, it's possible Maybe he was actually meditating on those verses in those days. Maybe even that day when Satan came and tempted him. Makes me think of that often we worry about how we're going to respond to somebody. Somebody's talking to us or has a question or, or says something against the Lord or challenges us. And, you know, you're thinking in your head, how do I respond to this? I'm forgetting this verse or what verse, you know, all that. But many times the answer is exactly what we've been reading. Well, God has been showing us even that day or that week. That's how good God is. Just That's why it's so important to meditate on his word. The importance of daily time with him. But over here, Jesus is ever our example. You know, he uses the word. Pick up your sword, fight the evil. The sword being the word of God. And, and he's living out that scripture here in the wilderness. He's, he's, he's denying himself physical nourishment while while spiritually feasting. Now, Satan challenged Jesus to produce bread. Would it have been wrong for him to produce food for himself? He was clearly hungry. He clearly needed food. No. But in this instance, A, he's certainly not going to listen to the advice of Satan. Like, well, Satan, you are the prince of darkness, but you do give a compelling point. No. And he's also willingly submitting himself to God's perfect timing. It's, it's not time yet. I, I am submitting myself to the perfect will of my father. So over here, Satan's first plan does not work. So verse 5. Then the devil took him up into the holy city 
set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, again, if, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Since the first plan didn't work, um, since the first plan didn't work over here, Satan decides to ramp it up a bit. Oh, you're using scripture, Jesus. Well, I can use scripture too. Two can play at that game. Look at all the religions and movements and cults that claim to be under that Christian umbrella, but pervert God's word or add or delete things to, to suit their own brand of truth. Satan is very astute, and he uses God's words in a manipulative manner and out of context, and we'll show you why. This comes from Psalm 91. If everyone can go to Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, please. Psalm 91, 11 and 12. So it says here, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, Psalm 91, I love this psalm. This was actually my mother's probably favorite passage. Um, and uh, she would, when I, I, when I was a little kid, I was the youngest of eight. And so she would often, probably because I was more spoiled, she would take me uh, when it was bedtime sometimes and have me, she would recite psalms all the time and I'd sit there and fall asleep to them. This is one of the ones she recited often and in Spanish though. And, uh, but when she, um, when she was, she, she died of leukemia in 2013 and when she was diagnosed with leukemia in the hospital, one of my other brothers went to be by her bedside and this was the psalm. She, she, she didn't say anything, she just said, can you read me Psalm 91? Um, and so he read it to her. So it's got, it has a very special, special place for me. But over here in these two verses, I mean, this is a psalm of, of protection, God's protection in times of crisis. But over here, Satan was asking Jesus to manufacture a crisis. This wasn't a crisis. This wasn't a crisis at all. Uh, he was telling him, if we go back to, to Matthew for a moment, he told him to... Uh, if you were the son of God, throw yourself down. For his red, no, the angels will, basically, the angels will come and get you. So just throw yourself down. This isn't a crisis. This isn't a problem. Psalm 91 is the Lord intervening in a time of, of trouble, in a time of crisis. I need you, Lord. Not, I'm just going to jump off this building, the temple, the pinnacle, and you'll catch me. No, this is a, a I think of the, the early 1900s, the snake charmers. And the, the, this, these cults that developed of these men who claimed that they could handle any venomous creature, they were, they were using scripture wrong um, to, uh, because they were claiming, hey, God is, God is our protection. God will protect us from the venomous viper like he protected Paul on the island of Malta, like, uh, and he just shook it off. So if, I have, if we have enough faith, we can handle these snakes and these venomous creatures and nothing will happen. And conveniently, if someone did get bitten by a snake, well, they lacked faith. And if they died, well, it was simply their time. 
But you see how they used this as a way to gain notoriety for themselves. It, it, was, it, was, it was self-proclamation. It wasn't a crisis. These weren't crises. They were exercises in self-promotion. And, and, and also an exercise in, in measuring your, your godliness, your spiritual character, because obviously those who might handle these snakes in a religious, religious setting and not get bit, bitten by the snake, oh, they must be very spiritual, they must be very godly, versus the person who does get bitten, oh, they're not. Their, their faith is not genuine. So see how this is being used over here. And, and, and so Satan takes Jesus to the, the pinnacle of the temple, Jerusalem. This is 200 feet above the Kidron Valley floor. And to have him leap off intentionally would, and, and then be rescued by angels, that would be quite the spectacle, right? In Satan's logic, this is a win-win. Because, hey, you, you, if you're the son of God, look, jump off this temple, angels will catch you, everybody will see that you really are the son of God after that, right? And then also win because now you're doing what I say. You're listening to me. But Jesus was not about to mock his father, right? He was not going to mock God by doing this. And, you know, he knew, again, I am submitting to my father in all things. This is not the way. Um, speaking of it being not the way, the way Satan quoted these verses, he conveniently left something out. It said, to keep you in all your ways, in Psalm 91. To keep you in all your ways. This wasn't the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus, he, he's not a deceiver, because that would be deceptive. To come and jump off there, that would be a deceptive, that you're, make, you're making up a crisis, you're making up this, this terrible thing, I'm, the angels need to come and catch me and come and rescue me. Again, manufactured crises. Jesus was not a deceiver. Satan is the deceiver. In, in, in here, it's like Satan's literally saying, be like me, Jesus. Do what I would do. It's a warning for us as well. Don't listen to someone simply because they quote the Bible. Lots of people quote scriptures from the Bible. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to know the truth of God so that we can say, Hey, that's out of context, what you're saying. You're not quoting that contextually. You're using it for your own purposes, which is what exactly what Satan was doing. 2 Peter 1.10 also says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. So always think, does this line up with scripture? Does this line up with what, the, what else the Bible tells us? Is it being taken out of context? Satan was absolutely doing that uh, over here with Psalm 91. So he quotes it here, lest you dash your foot against a stone. How does Jesus respond now? Satan used scripture inaccurately, wrong, deceptively, to Christ, now Jesus comes back again with scripture and he uses it accurately and correctly. Jesus said to him in verse seven, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Very direct. I'm not messing around, Satan. Don't tempt the Lord your God. 
This is also from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. The Israelites tempted God in demanding a, from him, a sign from him, demanding they, they, they were running out of water, they were running out of provisions. At that point, it was no longer enough for them, even though God had always provided for them. So they're trying to force God to act on their behalf through manipulation, through questioning God's goodness. Why God bring us out here when he had always taken care of them? provided for all their needs. Again, this is exactly what Satan was doing to Jesus. He's trying to make him prove himself. Twice he says, if you're the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God. And in turn, he's asking him to tempt the father. Why would we want to be like Satan and not like Jesus? We, we can be like this. How many times have we said or thought... God, if you do this for me, I will do this. God, if you don't do this for me, then I won't do this. I won't serve you as faithfully. Maybe we're not saying it out loud because it sounds terrible, but when we're up against the wall, we can forget about the goodness and faithfulness of God and begin to doubt and begin to question and begin to even put demands on God, like you have to do this, Lord. Now, I'm amazed also at Jesus here because he had the power from the get-go and the authority to just say, Satan, get out of here. You, get out. It makes me think, not that I want to compare my students at school to Satan because I'm not trying to do that, but I'm teaching summer school right now, and my former seventh graders who are now eighth graders, a lot of them are taking an algebra course, and they get an extra 10-minute break because it's a longer class. So at some point when I'm, when I'm teaching and my door is open, in come about 10 kids and they just come kind of running in with, you know, can we hang out here? Can we play Kahoot with you? It's a game on, online. Can we do this? Can, can you give me a Jolly Rancher? And, and, I, and at some point I'm just like, because they know me, I just turn around and I say, get out. You know, no, get out. And they know, they know, these kids know I love them and, and you know, they're always welcome. But at that moment, no, get out. And they'll be back tomorrow. I guarantee it. But over here, it's like Jesus just had the, he had the power to just go, Satan's nothing to, to, to Jesus. He could, get out. I'm done with you. But he doesn't yet. He says it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He, to me, this is just absolute First, he's combating the schemes of Satan with the word of God, which is an, the ultimate example for us. It, but also, he's saying, okay, not yet, Satan. I'm not going to send you away yet. I'm the Real power under control, a, a true meekness there. He had absolutely the power to do that. But it's, it's not time yet. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. Here's the final temptation of Jesus to, hey, worship me. And this is what Satan has truly wanted, adulation. He's always wanted this. If we go back to Isaiah 14, 13 and 14, I will read it. He said, Lucifer, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation 
on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. That's what he wants worship. He wants to be adored. He wants worship. He tried to get the angels to rebel against God. He convinced a third of them. But we also see, I, I see here, I think his desperation at this point. You won't perform a miracle for me. You won't manipulate the hand of God for me. Just, just, just worship me. I just want to be worshipped. More important than the, king, the kingdoms of the earth, the devil has always craved worship. He's craved to be exalted, to be worshipped, to be like God. And now that is in a world, the world we live in, that in many ways models itself after Satan in, in, in the worship of self. But true godliness requires the absence of self. John 3.30 tells us he must become greater, I must become less. Contrary to what the Bible tells us, this brings joy. As you, if you look at that passage, this brings joy to John, as he says it in this passage, becoming less. That completely flies in the face of what we are taught in this world. So becoming less will actually bring joy. Yes, it is our joy to make Christ greater. Less of me and more of you. But also in this request, Satan's offering Jesus an out. You don't need to go to the cross. I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. There's an easier way. We can never trust the devil's more convenient, easy plans. Now, it's important to know, if, if Satan's in a position to say, I'll offer you the kingdoms of the, of the earth, well, he has a certain amount of authority over the kingdoms of the earth. And we know this. Who's given him this temporary authority? God. That's why the world is so messed up. But no, the plan here was absolutely set. Jesus came not to travel the easy road, but to live a sinless life as a man, to die to shed his blood for our sins, to pay the price. And because of that, uh, we who are saved and who identify with him, uh, that is more important than where we were born, the color of our skin, whether we're male or female. We belong, belong to Christ, and our identity is in him. And he came to fulfill that plan and purpose of dying for us and shedding his blood. So the blood that is in us is far less important than the blood that covers us. So verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, so now, okay, now it's, I'm done. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. So Jesus' response here, go away, Satan. So James really told us the truth here. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Again, temptation is not a sin. Jesus was tempted, giving in to that temptation. That's the sin. But like Jesus, we have the word of God to deliver us from temptation. I love this passage because we see here that Jesus is simply using scripture to combat the lies, the falsehoods, the manipulation of Satan, the questioning. 
using scripture, you know, using several passages in Deuteronomy, showing us, hey, like I said, maybe he's been, had been meditating on these things in the desert. And so what happens because of this, verse 11, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So the result of us resisting, the devil flees, the devil left. Victory over here for Jesus. And you know what? The angels still ministered to him here. They brought sustenance. Kind of reminds me of when Elijah um, was running away in fear after the great victory against the prophets of Baal and then being told, you're going to die. And so he's running off and then ends up wishing God would just take his life. But here, here's God's mercy. Even though he had, after this great victory, he had this massive doubt and fear and said, I just want to die. God still had angels come and minister to him, and they brought him food. That's God's mercy. We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. I love Joshua 1 because Joshua's told so many times to be courageous. Because God knows we fear. Fear will come. But God reminds us over and over to not fear, to be courageous, to trust him. He's got this. Now, I read somewhere, and I forgot where, but I read somewhere that uh, it's always important, you know, as, as, as Jesus, whatever Jesus was meditating on, he used against Satan. Whatever we need to be, we, when we're meditating with the Lord, he will work that through in our hearts, in our minds, and through our mouths, out of our mouths, to work for his glory. But somebody in what I read called it fresh bread. We should always have fresh bread. Think uh, of leaving, you know, bread out for days and days and days, and it gets stale and moldy, and it's now inedible. But fresh bread, ooh, bread that just gets baked, and it comes straight out of the oven, and you slice it, and put some butter on it, delicious. Fresh bread. So we should always have fresh bread. Fresh bread, a fresh experience with God's word daily to be able to combat the schemes, the strategies of Satan, um, and giving us the strength to also resist temptation, as Jesus did, and to live God's truth, submit to his perfect plan. Now, like I said, temptation comes in many forms. Everybody will struggle with different types of temptation. We need always the Lord's truth, the Lord's word, um, the, the, our brothers and sisters to help us through these times. Um, you know, I'm going to invite um, me to come back up and play us a song and just, um, I'm going to pray. And, you know, if there's something that you just need to give to the Lord, Lord, I'm struggling with this. Uh, with, with, with being tempted in this area. I'm struggling with not uh, really making you a priority, and so I feel weak. I feel like I'm always struggling with these different things. Give it to the Lord. You know, take this time to pray as we worship and, and just give these matters to God and know that he is listening, that he wants to strengthen us and empower us. He wants us to live um, the example of Jesus in his life, in our lives, because ultimately then He's given the glory as we have victory uh, in him. So let's just worship together. And as we worship, why don't we all stand?